Welcome to History Lab. I'm your host, Tamsin Peach, and this season we're covering histories that intersect with the law. And we're starting in 1948 in a wheat field in the middle of Canada with our senior producer, Olivia Rosenman. It was late one midsummer's night in June. Irene Fullerton remembers her neighbour, Bessie Mae Harris, knocking frantically at their family's front door. Someone said, your neighbour is pinned under a tractor and we need help. He's still alive. The man pinned under the tractor was Bessie's husband, Cecil George Harris. He was a wheat farmer in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan. It was dark, a terrible lightning storm on and raining by this time. Bob Hanny lived on a farm nearby. He was part of the rescue party that rushed to try and save Cecil. They were big, deep steel lugs, about a four-inch lug, made like a A or a V. One lug must have stopped his leg from moving. So the next lug went through his waist about uh, Beltline. In pitch black and pelting rain, they somehow managed to jack up the Case Model C tractor and freeze Cecil. They got him into a car to take him to the hospital, but the heavy rain had turned the gravel roads to mud. So Hanny had to use his family's tractor to tow the car to Highway 7, the main road to medical help. It was after midnight when they finally arrived at the hospital. Cecil was still alive, but in a bad way. He'd been stuck under that tractor for hours. Before he was found in the wheat field that night, Cecil George Harris had done something quite unusual, something that would etch his name into Canada's legal history and form a precedent for lawyers around the world. Cecil George Harris used a penknife to scratch 16 words into the fender of his tractor. Those words changed the way courts across the common law world think about what can be accepted as a document and what makes a valid legal will. Helping us to make sense of this is one of our well-loved collaborating historians, Catherine Biber. One thing I've observed is that death, money and family together are some kind of special cocktail that unleashes a force that isn't present in other contexts. Today, the comedy, the tragedy, and the surprising drama of wills, and how technology is changing succession law, the area of law that deals with what happens to your stuff after you die. Back to our senior producer, Olivia Rosenman. Hello, hi, Olivia. Hello, Jeff, can you hear me? I have to turn something on in here. Oh, hi, Olivia. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, yes. This is Jeff Elwand. Um, So thank you so much for coming in. It's my pleasure, Olivia, because I love this story. He's a Canadian lawyer and journalist. I spoke to him from the University of Arizona, where he's an associate professor in the School of Journalism. I'll do my best to avoid any kind of legal jargon stuff. If if I start getting jargony, just call me up on it. He's also a bit of an expert in the tractor case. I mean, I just tried to cross every T and dot every I associated with the story. Jeff travelled to Rosetown, where Cecil Harris lived, to research the case. He told me Saskatchewan is what Canadians call a prairie province. It's sprawling, sparsely populated and extremely remote. We're talking 1,500 kilometres from Canada's west coast and almost 3,000 from the east. The land is dotted with forests and farms. It's farming country, still looks now a lot like it did back in 1948. It's 
sort of remote flat with a great big sky, no shade, uh, very little water, but it is good for growing primarily wheat. There's basically nothing but crops and usually uh, gravel roads running around. Olivia? Yeah? Hadn't we better tell the History Lab listeners what Cecil's 16 words were before they turn us off? All right, okay. So remember, he's written them while he's out there alone, stuck under the tractor before the rescue party arrives. I'll let Jeff take it from here. It's only subsequently that people realized that he'd used a pen knife because he was trapped there in the middle of a field. He certainly didn't have a pen or paper. There were no nails or anything around. So it appears that he used a pocket knife to scrawl a very simple message. In case I die in this mess, I leave all to the wife. And he signed it. So basically, Cecil Harris wrote a will. Yes and no. Let's start with the legal definition of a will from Catherine Biber. In case you don't remember her from our first season, Catherine's a legal scholar, historian and criminologist at the University of Technology, Sydney. And she's the one who told me about Cecil George Harris in the first place. She's been researching wills and how they're changing. Probably the most exemplary form of the legal document is a last will and testament. It's a heavily rule-bound document. It's actually quite a simple document, but there are some strict formalities that are required before a will can be formal. So the will needs to be written on paper. The will needs to have two witnesses. The will needs to be signed by the testator. The testator is the person who makes the will. So let's go back to that June night over 70 years ago in Saskatchewan. It was already pretty extraordinary that after getting pinned under his tractor with huge metal lugs severing his legs and abdomen, Cecil Harris had been found alive and rescued. But it's what happened next that set his name in history. He got to the hospital. Doctor looked at him and they, they put him in a hospital bed. And of course, they took his clothes off and they handed the clothes to the driver of the car, who was uh, a friend of Harris's. But... Tragically, Harris died the next morning. Around the same time as Harris is drawing his final breaths, two of his neighbours are out laying grasshopper poison in a field close to the scene of the accident. And one of them noticed on the tractor fender this message, in case I die in this mess, I leave all to the wife. So they took the tractor back, they put it in the barn to preserve it, and they went into town to tell the local lawyer what had happened. Now, the guy who'd taken Harris's clothes from the hospital gets home, and in the pocket of Cecil's pants, he finds a knife. And he thinks, oh, gee, what am I going to do with that? I I better give it to the lawyer, because by this time he'd heard that they'd found a will and they'd taken it to the lawyer. He was a man named W.S. Elliott. And according to Jeff Elwand, this country lawyer did something quite unique. The lawyer did a magnificent job on this. When you think, you know, country lawyer, he didn't just push this off. He got pictures taken of the tractor because he assumed the court would accept pictures. But the court insisted on the actual will. So uh, that was submitted to the court. Wait, the fender of the tractor that had crushed and killed Cecil Harris was submitted to the court as his will? 
Yes, the piece of the tractor that Cecil had scratched his dying wishes into. It's a square piece of metal measuring around 33 by 33 centimetres. It's about the size and weight of one of those nice big dinner plates you might get in a fancy restaurant. But that's not all the lawyer did. He got the local banker to confirm Cecil George Harris's signature. The banker submitted signature cards from the bank's files as evidence. And Jeff says... He did just a terrific job, presented the case with... He had about 10 witnesses who submitted uh, statements. These included one of Cecil's former business partners and his wife. There was another problem facing the lawyer, though. He had to prove that even though Cecil hadn't actually died out there in the wheat field under the tractor, that the words he'd written, in case I die in this mess, still applied. So he got an affidavit from the doctor that said that Cecil died as a result of the injuries he sustained in the accident. So did he say anything about the will when he was in the hospital or, you know, at any point before he died? No, maybe he was too out of it. Or maybe he was just an optimistic kind of guy, like he thought he was going to survive. Either way, Jeff says this didn't prove to be an issue for the judge. It was generally agreed that Cecil had died in that mess. It just breezed right through court. No problem at all. Let me get this straight. Even though it wasn't written on paper, even though it wasn't signed by two witnesses, and even though it didn't follow almost any of the rules, it was deemed to be a will... Yes, it was found by the judge to be a valid informal will. And that's thanks to a special clause in succession law that allows for a document to function as a will, provided it meets certain requirements. For an informal will to nevertheless be a valid will, it needs to be a document. That document must contain the testator's testamentary intentions Testamentary intentions, that's the legal term for what someone wants to happen to their things after they die. And if you've expressed those intentions on a document, even if you haven't done so exactly the way the law wants you to, well, the law has to find a way of dealing with that too. What I'm trying to get my head around is how can they really know what Cecil Harris wanted anyway? I mean, especially seeing as he didn't do what he was supposed to do and see a lawyer and write a formal will. Yeah, it's a good question, Tamsin. And as it turns out, Cecil Harris is not the only one. Historian Catherine Biber is quite fascinated by these unconventional wills. There are many wills that lack some or all of those formalities. And also there are some documents that we are not even sure whether or not they are a will. And so a large amount of jurisprudence has turned to the question of what do we do with informal documents And they may be informal wills or they may be found to be informal documents that are not wills. There are heaps of cases where people have left unusual objects as their will. An eggshell, graffiti on a wall, a soldier's paybook or a petticoat. So because these people have gone off script and not done what the law wants them to do while they were still alive... The court then has a whole process in which it tries to work out what the person really wanted after they die. The courts create all these kind of criteria and checklists in order to try and govern their thinking through what is otherwise an incredibly emotional minefield. You can see that these are grieving parties. These are often parties in dispute. These are often people who are left to take care of a mess after a person has died. And the court needs to wade through all of that grief and anger and pain and inconvenience and come up with a technical legal answer. 
And that's a big part of what drew Catherine to this in the first place. Yeah, look, that's actually one of the surprises that I experienced in doing this research was that at the outset, I thought this would be uh, area of law that was heavily governed by legislation. I thought it would be highly technical, extremely dry and probably quite boring. But what I discovered was actually a large body of case law of judges showing enormous humanity and compassion and really trying to understand the lives and tragedies and traumas and experiences of people who probably lived lives very different from judicial officers' lives. And when you think about all of the issues surrounding a will, it's an especially messy part of being a human. I guess one way you know that is when you see how many judges quote Shakespeare. You know, we think of Shakespeare as a playwright who captures some of the big themes of humanity. And when you can quote Shakespeare in a judgment about an informal will, you know you're really drawing together some of the big themes of humanity, death, money, family, jealousy, regret, grief, afterlife. All of these things come together in Shakespearean quotes and all of these things come together in this area of law. Sometimes I felt when I was writing my judgments that these quotations helped me to rationalise the um, arguments that had been presented. That's Christopher Legault, a former judge of the Supreme Court of South Australia. Legault retired in 1994. He's now 91 years old. And I felt that um, sometimes poetry, and particularly Shakespeare, had a, a wonderful ability to describe human feelings, human intentions, human understandings and human meanings. And uh, I did quote uh, Shakespeare on more than one occasion, I'm afraid. Judge Legault is an eminent legal authority on succession law. He also has a bit of a reputation for inserting literary references into his rulings. There was one particularly tricky case Judge Legault was appointed to rule on, the case of a man called Pantelei Slavinsky, who was 71 years old when he died in 1984. Yes, I did start off my judgment by quoting from Midsummer Night's Dream, as Snout the Tinker said, quote, This loam, this rough cast, and this stone doth show that I am that same wall, unquote. Pantelei Slavinsky was born in Ukraine in 1913. He lived most of his life in Adelaide. His case came before Judge Legault because just before he died, Slavinsky had written something in pencil on the wall of his suburban home in Semaphore Park. Funny circumstances, and uh, that's why I resorted to my rather non-judicial habit of saying at the end, when I had uh, looked at the facts, "'Tis strange, but true, for truth is always strange, stranger than fiction." That's a quote from Don Juan by the poet Lord Byron. So here's the facts. Pantelei Slavinsky was born in what was then the USSR. 
in a region that is now the Ukraine. But at the time of his death in 1984, it was still the USSR. He was an electrician. He hadn't had a spouse or partner and he didn't have any children. Pantelei was the second youngest of six kids and he was the last of them to die. Only one of his siblings, his sister Daria, had children. She had four children, but only three of them, the nieces, had survived. And these three nieces, Elena, Neonila and Ekaterina, were the final members of this whole family. So the only remaining family this guy had was three nieces on the other side of the world. And it's possible he'd never even met them. But he did have some lovely neighbours who treated him just like family. They'd lived next door for 30 years. They were called Mr and Mrs Skorik, Mikola and Katerina. For the last six years of his life, they cared for him. She cooked his meals and washed and ironed for him. She had the keys to his house and she checked on him every night before she went to sleep. A few months before he died, Mr Skorik went with Slavinsky to see a lawyer about making a will. He said he wanted to leave his estate to his nieces, but he didn't know their full names and addresses. So the lawyer told him to come back when he could track that info down. But Slavinsky ran out of time. So like many of these cases of informal wills, he was forced to take a more pragmatic approach. Slavinsky called the Skoriks to his house. He told them he would be going to hospital. He told them that he was writing his will. So he wrote on the wall in pencil in Ukrainian, to all my nieces, USSR. Underneath that, he wrote the name and address of one of the nieces on the wall. He then produced an envelope and on it was written the name and address of another of his nieces in the USSR and he stuck that envelope into a crack in the wall. Wait, what? Into the wall of the actual house? I mean, why? No one knows. Maybe he was so unwell that he just couldn't get out of bed to get a second envelope. After all, he was admitted to hospital the next day and died around 10 days later. Or maybe he just fancied the romance of secreting something in a wall. Whatever the reason, the why wasn't so important to Judge Legault when he made his ruling on the case. The real question was, were the words on the wall sufficient and they were uh, very brief, were they sufficient to constitute a testamentary intention, which is what had to be proved beyond reasonable doubt. I asked Legault why he didn't insist the wall be brought into the court, like the tract offender back in 1948 in Saskatchewan. Well, because it was a somewhat impractical way and it might destroy the wording, whereas the photograph would, of course, give a complete wording and uh, would be undestroyed. Perhaps if I can ask a more philosophical question. Why is it so important that the wishes of someone after they've passed away are seen to in an orderly way by the law? After all, you could argue that after somebody has passed away, they don't know what happens to their things anyway. Uh, Because it is fundamental to our economy, really, when you come to think of it, uh, where the estates go to. I mean, look at all the charities that benefit from probate. Uh, Look at the um, businesses that uh, benefit. By continuing to distribute property amongst private people, private individuals, the wheels of capitalism keep turning. So the probate division of any court is actually ensuring that private property continues to be in private hands. 
Of course, there's another thing that might explain why this is such an important area of law. It happens to be the most profitable part of the Supreme Court because the fees which are charged for probate are often done on a valuation basis, I think, and the um, Supreme Court doesn't run at a profit. But uh, the probate division does. The probate division in Canberra is made up of one office and one cubicle at the ACT Supreme Court. My name is Grant Keneally. I'm the uh, Deputy Registrar at the ACT Supreme Court. One of my functions as Deputy Registrar is to issue probate or deal with probate um, applications. It's a team of two. My name is Maria Boozes. I'm a probate officer. I generally just process probate documents before they get to Grant. One wall of Grant's office is filled with photos of his family. The other is filled with files and two pigeonholes labelled probate in and probate out. And in fact, I'll just, while I've got you there, Olivia, I'll just show you an example. This application was made. So that's the will having been. Grant flicked through the papers in the file and stopped at the death certificate. Nancy here has died. The people that then sign in the margin of the will are the people seeking probate and the witness. That's them saying to us, this is the last will of that person. And and so these are the the daughters? Yes, the two daughters. At this point, I was starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I was imagining everything that was probably happening around Nancy's death. An empty house, planning for a funeral, her two grieving daughters. It felt like these documents didn't really do the situation justice. There was a whole life lived in between the lines of technical, legal text. And that's when Grant came out with this. Every matter I look at, Olivia, um, I will look at the death certificate in some considerable detail and not just the detail that I'm looking at from a point of view of the grant of probate saying, is it a valid application? Looking at the will and seeing that this particular lady died at the age of 88 years. You know, she was born in Wagga. I used to love umpiring in Wagga. You know, she's a dietitian. Wow, I wish mine might have been a dietitian. Maybe I would have been a bit healthier with my food. Two children, aged 55 and 51. They're probably coping with it, okay? They're 55, 51. They're not 12 and 13, who, you know, often you'll see that. Died of, you know, this non small cell carcinoma of the lungs, cancer of the lung at the age of 88. You know, widowed, so at least her husband's not, you know, suffering as a result of her passing. That's what I look at when I see the death certificate. I personalise everyone. Even though you could say, look, it's a rubber stamping exercise, you know, and people just hear me giving the stamp when I issue the grant. It's not. It's it's a real personal exercise, every one of them, because you know everyone comes with a backstory. And each of these applications, with all of their backstories, are physically stored right here in the court's archive. There's a record of every will that's ever been granted probate in the ACT. The very first one belongs to a man named William Hill, who died on the 16th of July, 1929. Grant and Maria showed me the custom-made leather-bound ledger where the details of his case are inked with fountain pen. So this is the first probate that was um, applied for and granted. So that was William Hill. He's a minor with a pitchfork, I think, not a minor, as in under 18. And then this second man here, John Henry Feather, Feather. Mm -hmm. who was by occupation a gentleman. Yes. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) There was no whiteout back then. God, this is an amazing document. It It is a really fascinating. I said that too last week when Maria showed me. I said, wow, this is a really, really good book. This one was a knight. 
In the same room, there were five large safes filled with thousands of wills being stored by the court for safekeeping. But Grant told me that heaps of those wills were probably out of date. People's circumstances change. Like, if you get married, any formal will you have is automatically revoked. Forgive me if this seems rude, but is this not a little bit inefficient to be holding on to all these wills that... We're not allowed to destroy wills. Standing in a room surrounded by paper files... I started thinking about how strange and outdated it seemed to me to write something down on paper and lock it in a safe. Wherever it's possible, I create and store important information and paperwork digitally. I don't have a filing cabinet. All my important documents are in password-protected online storage. For me, that feels so much more secure and more practical as well. And as it turns out, I'm not alone. And so this is something the law has had to contend with in recent years. In the digital age, what we count as a document has undergone a massive transformation. While lawyers still prefer locked filing cabinets filled with paper, the law is actually quite progressive in the way it defines a document. A document is defined in modern evidence law in a very broad and inclusive way. It's also trying to anticipate forms of documentation that haven't yet come into existence. So it will include things that we might all agree are documents, which are um, things on which there is writing, but it will also include things on which there are marks, figures, symbols, perforations, even if those things require someone who is specialised in interpreting those marks or symbols. And it can also include things like photographs, drawings, diagrams, maps, and other representations that are not necessarily textual. And when it comes to what Catherine described earlier as the most exemplary form of the legal document, the last will and testament, it turns out there are many informal will cases involving digital documents. And Catherine was often surprised when she came across them. With something that I would regard as quite a casual act, the drafting of a text message, you can leave the entirety of your estate to people who did not expect to receive it. So I'm interested in the power that these actions and these documents can wield and how carefully the courts need to decide if this action intended to have this power or not and how will we know. Dave, you and Jack keep all that I have. House and superannuation. Put my ashes in the back garden with Trish. Julie will take her stuff only. She's okay, gone back to her ex again. I'm beaten. A bit of cash behind TV and a bit in the bank. Cash card pin, 3636. MRN, 10th of October, 2016. My will. Mark Nickel was 54 years old when he died by suicide. His mobile phone was sitting on the workbench in the shed where he was found. When a friend of Mark's wife was going through his contacts to find people to call to let them know what had happened, she found this unsent text message addressed to Mark's brother David. We had it voiced by an actor. Two applications were made to the court. One from David and his son Jack, submitting that this unsent text message should be treated as Mark's last will and testament. The other was from Julie, Mark's wife, submitting that Mark died intestate. That means he died without a will. 
If there was no will, this would mean Mark's estate would pass directly to Julie as his next of kin. A key issue in this case was that the text message was left as a draft on Mark's phone. It was never sent. So his wife, Julie, whilst she accepted that the text message did have some testamentary features, she also argued that he never sent it. She argued that by not sending it, that meant he had not made his mind up. David and Jack had a different explanation. So they said that the fact that the text message was not sent reflected Mark's effort to ensure that nobody would try and stop him from killing himself. They said it was clear that the text message was a will. They argued that he used the words, my will. He'd also included details that made it seem to be a will. He had his PIN number for his bank account. He had other information about where his assets could be found. He had information about his date of birth and he had information about where he'd like his ashes to be placed. The judge considered statements from David, Jack and Julie, as well as Mark's mother, his first long-term partner, another good friend and a digital forensics expert. Reading the judgment of the case, it's kind of chilling just how much of the messiness of these people's lives is laid bare. The court document says Mark and Julie had a difficult relationship with lots of ups and downs. They had been together for about three and a half years and they'd been separated a few times. Their most recent separation was just a few days before Mark had died. I wanted to know what the whole experience was like for David and Julie. After the trauma of losing Mark to suicide, they had to dredge up all these intensely personal details for a judge to make a decision on whether or not this unsent text message could be considered as Mark's will. So I tracked them down. I got onto David first and we spoke on the phone. He told me about his close relationship with Mark. They were only 13 months apart and shared everything with each other. The legal battle had taken a huge toll on David. He was pretty blunt in describing his animosity towards lawyers. And that's even though he won. If you can call what happens in these situations winning. David agreed to an interview for this podcast. And then, not long after agreeing to talk to me, He sent me a text message letting me know he'd changed his mind. More than three years later, he said he was still too traumatised by everything that had happened. Later I found Julie. I could hear she was quite upset to be talking about it, but she told me she was really relieved to finally be able to tell her side of the story. So I booked a studio and we set up an interview for the next day. That morning, I received a text message cancelling our appointment. I mean, I guess that's fair enough, really. Yeah, I thought a lot about the conversations I had with both David and Julie. It struck me that even though the law had tried its best to work out what it was that Mark really wanted, its process, its way of making a decision, caused a massive human cost to those he left behind. In Mark Nichols' case then, the court ultimately decided that the unsent text message was a document and that it was intended to act as a will? Yes, But thinking about the question of why he did or didn't send it, you can see how, when it comes to informal wills left on digital devices, the courts are faced with slightly more slippery situations than writing on a tractor or a wall. And in these situations, they don't just look at what the document says, but also the context of how it was made, how the person who created it used technology when they were still alive. People who use digital technologies in certain ways might hold it in a different regard. 
So, for example, I send very casual and informal text messages. And if I was trying to convey something formal, serious and final, I probably wouldn't do it in the form of a text message. The law looks to the intentions of the individual. And if I am known as a person who likes to create formal documents when I'm trying to create binding states of affairs, then the court will know not to regard my various text messages as legally binding documents. Whereas another person who relies heavily on digital communications for all sorts of administration may be more likely to have their digital artefacts regarded as binding legal instruments. But there's a little problem in how these judges might arrive at their decisions. Look, I think it's probably a generalisation, but not an entirely flawed one, to say that most judicial officers are not as adept at using digital technologies as um, the people whose digital artefacts they are left to make decisions about. Of course, it's not just judges who struggle with technology. What happens when you make a digital will, but you forget the password? Okay, Roger was... um I always grew up thinking of him as a cousin, but he was kind of more like an uncle figure to me. So he was younger than my mum, but not close in age to me. This is Kate Shepherd. Kate and Roger share a great-great-grandparent in common, making them second cousins once removed. He was quite bohemian. He lived in Balmain in a three-bedroom terrace house that he'd inherited from family. Whenever we went up to Sydney, that's where we stayed. He did a lot of work sort of collecting vintage suitcases and curios and selling them on at markets. He was really into science fiction. Shoulder length, hennaed red hair. For a while he had to wear an eye patch after a motorbike accident. He really was a great eccentric bohemian uncle figure. He was great. (laughs) As she grew older, Kate would often visit Roger at his home in Balmain. Often I'd come over just for a cup of tea or to drop in and as soon as I arrived... He'd say, would you like a slice of cake? And I'd unwittingly say, sure. And he'd proceed to bake it from scratch. So you stayed much longer. Roger was 52 years old when he died in 2012. He had an ongoing heart condition and that year his health had been worsening. So he agreed to finally have a heart surgery that his doctors had long recommended, but he'd just kept putting off. I remember visiting him in the hospital after his surgery um, and he already looked better. He was telling stories. He got to the point where he was laughing and he had to hold a big rolled-up towel against his chest so that he didn't pop the stitches but was looking at me with this cheeky look like, don't make me laugh, you'll kill me. The surgery was a success, but then suddenly, a couple of weeks later, Roger passed away. A few months before he died, Roger had told Kate's mum, Truda, that he'd made a will, that he'd encrypted it and he told her the password. But the problem was he didn't tell her exactly where he'd put it and to make things trickier, she forgot the password. A little while after Roger died, some of his friends found a USB stick in a drawer in his house. It had an encrypted file on it. The encrypting it, like, um, was, was that surprising? Was he particularly tech savvy? Was he a little bit maybe paranoid? Like it's an interesting move. That... Both, neither of those are surprising for Roger. That it's encrypted? expected anything that was his personal files Um, and also paranoia, beliefs that people were watching, whether or not he saw it as paranoia, but he was very into all of that. And yet he wrote everything down in a diary hard copy as well. (laughs) 
Ironically, the encryption wasn't difficult to crack. And behind it was a document listing out in 16 detailed paragraphs what Roger wanted to happen to his house and all his things. I found out uh, that I'd been left the house in Roger's will from David's legal team. David was Roger's brother. He was challenging it, saying it was not a legal will and that Roger had died intestate. Remember, intestate is when someone dies without having made a will. And he had to send out um, notice to everyone named in the will saying um, you've got, I think it was two weeks or however long it is, that the, the official amount of time that you've got to register if you do want to challenge that he's intestate. And, of course, I, I wanted to. Um, I'd never expected to have anything left to me, but looking at it, it so looked like Roger's wishes. The, the document just reeked Roger that that was what he wanted and I felt like I'd kind of been left the job of doing what he wanted. Um, And of course it was also a great opportunity for me being left a house. Roger's will is reproduced in the case judgment, which is a public record of the New South Wales Supreme Court. Each of the 16 paragraphs describes a treasured object of his. I imagine him sounding something like this. To Lou Francis Gretsch, artist of Coochie, to my mate, Melissa Doctor Dance, last residing in London, of small, proposed, unique, reach Tasmanian origin, containing two enclosed plinths and a central drawer. With brass and ebony trimming in original condition. To Caroline's daughter, Sasha May O'Connell. I bequeath the rose gold Rolex inscribed which is the provenance of Margaret Birch. Late of New Zealand. Roger had a way with words. He also had a lot of stuff. A lot of people would describe him as a hoarder or a borderline hoarder. After all the objects that were named in the will were distributed, everything left over was... To be divided equally by agreed market value amongst all of the above named beneficiaries of this will... If any items in this method of choice are disputed, then such items shall go to the beneficiary demonstrating the greatest financial need. It's an idealistic will. (laughs) It trusts in the best of people. It's a beautiful will. When I first read it, um, my heart kind of swelled. I was like, that's that's Roger. Um, And the hope that all people named can agree on everything, be found, be in the same room, organise things, but the practicalities of getting it to work, not quite as ideal as the the vision of what it would be. Kate got a lawyer and entered a legal challenge against Roger's brother. After a failed attempt at mediation, the case was heard in court in August 2015, three years after Roger had died. The legal costs to get to this point had already ballooned. And because these costs come out of the estate, Roger's house had to be sold to fund the case. I would have loved to have lived in that house. Um, Not only was it a beautiful house in a beautiful location, it's one of the first places I went to when I came up to Sydney as a child, so I had beautiful memories there. And, like in so many of these cases, the people who stood to gain the most were the lawyers and the court. In the end, the majority of the estate went to legal fees because of all of the back and forth, which is sad. (laughs) After two days in court, the judge found that Roger's encrypted file was a valid informal will. 
so Kate became the prime beneficiary, and this made her the primary person responsible for all of Roger's stuff. Which, because the house had been sold, was now packed into four storage lockers, kind of like an archive of Roger's life. Once I was given the keys to the lockers, I just started going every weekend for, in my school holidays in particular. I'd just come to a a black garbage bag, open it up to see what it was, and it would be four garbage bags full of silk ties organised into rough colours, so one of blue ties, one of reddish maroon, one of yellowish gold. And just going through them, I'd often have these kind of mental conversations with Roger, being... So these must have been for markets. Please tell me these were for markets. How long did it all take? Oh, more than two years. From, from the judgment, not, not the court case and everything, from the court case, from the judgment being made to me finishing the final locker, about two years. But after everything Kate went through, she says she doesn't regret it. It was hard, but I felt like I was left the job for a reason. It's really sad that the beauty of the will then turns into this legal saga. Mm. I mean, what do you think he would have made of all of that if he'd known that that would happen? Do you think he would have just gone to a lawyer? I try not to think about that part too much. I hope he would have just gone to a lawyer because it would have been much more simple for everyone. But as knowing Roger, I think there'd be part of him that would kind of enjoy being the centre of attention and having everyone quibbling over things in court, but he'd also would have been very angry and very frustrated at how a lot of things went. I sat with Kate on kitchen stools at the breakfast bar in her apartment. When her mother-in-law took her tiny seven-week-old baby off her hands, she showed me a few of the things that she had kept that were Roger's. That little um, glass jar that has the plant growing in it. That was from Roger's kitchen. Um, Four of the spoons and spatulas, I have that kind of stuff around and I find it really comforting. That's actually the part I like most, the little small things that are in the kitchen um, that remind me of him in a nice way. And while she isn't living in Roger's house, What she finally ended up with, after all the legal fees, is enough for a decent home deposit. And that's what she intends to spend it on. But the whole saga has also left her with something else she knows would have made Roger happy. It's a a dramatic story to be told over a table at dinner, which is exactly what Roger would have done. (laughs) But in the end, what the court wants to know is what did Roger express as his permanent testamentary intentions and they've had this one document that he'd password protected on his computer and the question was is this his last will and testament after considerable effort the law made a call on his final wishes and after all of this those wishes have finally been carried out digital artifacts and devices have disrupted what we've expected people to do in order for their wishes to be legally valid and formal But there's one thing technology hasn't changed. We still die. Death is still death. That is a material reality. And things are still things. They don't suddenly acquire special new powers because we have died and our things continue to survive. So I feel like the technology is a tool, but it's not transformative of what it means to die and what it means 
to give your things to another person. The law still has its way of knowing. You've been listening to History Lab. This is the first of our four-part series where we look at the intersection of history and the law. If this episode has caused you any distress, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you'd like to see The Track Defender and other bonus content from this episode, head to our website, historylab.net. And if you've got a good story about an informal will, why don't you let us know on Twitter? We're at History Lab Pod. Now roll the credits. History Lab is made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. Thank you to our collaborating historian for this episode, Catherine Biber. This episode was made by our senior producer, Olivia Rosenman. The executive producer was Emma Lancaster and sound engineer and mixing was by Output Media. Our story, consultant and editor was Belinda Lopez. We're grateful to the UTS Law Faculty and to Priya Vaughan and to those we spoke to, Jeff Elwand, Grant Keneally and Maria Buzas, Judge Christopher Legault, David Nicol, Julie Vidler-Nicol and Kate Shepard. And to our voice actors, Andrew Popel, Yuri Chernavsky and Peter Frank. And a special shout-out goes to our glam friends around the world, including Robin and her team at the University of Saskatchewan Law Library, who carefully measured the tract offender to help us better describe it, and to the ACT Supreme Court for opening up their probate office to us. History Lab is made by the Australian Centre for Public History and Impact Studios at UTS in collaboration with our media partner, 2SER 107.3. 